Hello, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. It is your host, Nick Sararis, and we are here to talk about one of my favorite hockey players on the planet Earth. We are here to talk about the plight of Connor McDavid as captain, savior, 2015 first overall pick of the Edmonton Oilers, and it is a big picture discussion today. I'm riding solo, no guest, but we're going to be talking about what happens when you are a rebuilding team that misses the mark in your rebuild, where you get only one or two of the pieces you need to be successful, and then you try and speed up the process, because, you know, you got your two really good players and you want to build around them. You feel like you can get to a playoff spot relatively easily if you just support supplement your Connor McDavid, your Leon Dreisaitl. So you try and take shortcuts. You spend a lot of money on name players, older players, depth players from other teams that they couldn't afford to keep because those guys wanted raises, that kind of thing. And you mess up your roster. And very, very quickly, you run out of moves to make to improve your roster. And you're left with no obvious solutions to your problems like the Edmonton Oilers are now. And like the Buffalo Sabres are to the same extent with Jack Eichel, where I wrote about it today for Gotham Sports Network. Eichel and McDavid are in the same boat. Just because McDavid's been to the playoffs three times, I mean, he's won a series and Eichel hasn't finished higher than sixth since he was drafted as a Sabre. But They both have the same problem. Neither player is any closer to winning the Stanley Cup than they were that night they both got drafted in Sunrise, Florida back in 2015. And that's going to be the center of the discussion today. But before I get to today's show, I do have to remind everyone to help support the show. Whatever podcasting platform you like to listen to, this podcast is there whether it is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud. If it's not on a platform you like to listen to podcasts on, please just DM me. I can get it up very easily. It's not hard to upload to other podcasting platforms. If you are on Apple Podcasts, you have the added responsibility of opening the show's page, going down to the bottom. There's going to be five clear stars. You hit the one furthest to the right. That's a five-star review. And if you have an extra minute... Beneath that is a button that says write a review in purple letters. Hit that. Leave a few words of encouragement. Support your content creators. We're working our asses off this time of year. Like I said, blog up on Gotham Sports Network went up about this topic if you'd prefer to read it as opposed to listen to a 30-40 minute podcast. And with that, I'll see you guys in a sec. Now, a golden opportunity. Kyle Connor shoots and he scores! And with that, we'll get right on into it. The Edmonton Oilers lost in triple overtime to the Winnipeg Jets last night, swept out of the first round. This is the third time in Connor McDavid's NHL career he has made the playoffs. That is including last year's qualifying round series loss to the Blackhawks, which happened at the Oilers' home arena as the Western Conference bubble team host. That happened at Rogers' place. Less than ideal. Also appeared this season, obviously, and then he appeared his second season in the league where the Oilers won 
a first-round series and then lost in the second round. To blame Connor McDavid and Dreisaitl and anyone on that top line for this series, uh, you're missing the boat here. Yes, McDavid and Dreisaitl did not impose their will on this series like they did in the regular season. I know the Oilers went 7-2 and two against the Jets in the regular season. McDavid had 105 points in 56 games, one of the best statistical rates of production we've ever seen in the modern era of the NHL. So I feel pretty confident in saying those two individuals, McDavid and Dreisaitl, were not the reason the Oilers lost this series. I would go as far as to say... Connor Hellebuck's the only reason the Jets even had a chance in this series, even average or slightly above average goaltending, and the Jets don't really have a shot here. We've known for about two years now that Hellebuck is probably the best or second best goalie in the world, depending on your opinion of him and Andre Vasilevsky, but I 6.9 goals saved above expected in four games, just otherworldly stuff, and I can't talk about this series without mentioning the fact that three of the four games went to overtime one of them went to triple overtime and it goes to show you just how close of a series this was I understand that you know the Oilers were expected to win the series they were the betting favorite I did pick the Oilers to win the series based on the logic that the Jets just don't play good defense and they didn't the Oilers had close to 60% of the scoring chances, 60-something percent of the expected goals. Pretty convincing numbers that would tell you the Oilers were in control of the puck a lot, that the Jets didn't have a ton of scoring chances, and the chances the Jets did have weren't of the highest quality, but that's just the way playoff hockey works. The best team does not always win. I do think the Jets are probably a more well-rounded team a little bit more depth they do have the ability to roll out three lines when they're fully healthy and they disperse out their talent a little bit but big picture I really did think the Oilers were in good shape here just because they had so much foot speed and they'd be able to go around that D and create those odd man rushes and those breakaways but the Jets really did a good job of clogging up the neutral zone running something close to a 1-3-1 in the neutral zone to slow down transition not give the Oilers the speed necessary to get through the zone to create the odd man rushes and the breakaways that are such a key part of the Edmonton offense. But even when the Oilers were able to gain the offensive zone, they were creating pretty good scoring chances. They were getting the puck to dangerous areas. There just wasn't finishing. And I know it sounds weird for me to say that, you know, finishing is a luck-based thing. It is. Especially when you're playing a goaltender like Hellebuck, who when they're in the right zone, it's been, it's like looking at a brick wall. You're not going to beat Hellebuck, even if you are shooting at a perfect spot from a dangerous area. And that's what happened here for four games. The Oilers played well enough to win. I'd say they played well enough to win in all four games. I know the final score in game one was 4-1 to one in favor of Winnipeg, but that was a one-goal game until the Oilers pulled their goalie. And... I know there are some people who feel that Mike Smith is at least partly responsible for why the Oilers lost last night. And I will say Mike Smith did not have a great series. Saved below expectation. I believe he was a minus one point something goal saved above expected, meaning he let in about a goal and a half more than he was expected to based on expected goals model. So not great scoring chances. Did not handle the puck as cleanly as he usually does. I know that's supposed to be one of Mike Smith's features. Like, one of the reasons teams continue to cycle through him 
as a goalie on the goalie carousel is the simple fact that he can help your defense out by breaking the puck out of the zone if the other team dumps it in before they can establish a forward check. So it allows you to get back to offense quicker. And for some teams, like a team like Edmonton that wants to play a transition-centric game, that makes sense for them to have Mike Smith. But not the best series from Mike Smith or the Oilers in general. I mean, they played well enough to win, but the consensus when the consensus is that your team is better than the other team, you really it's hard to not say these are excuses i'm making and i do have sympathy for the oilers because they've tried to do the best they can with what they have and i know that sounds crazy to say about a team that features you know two of the 10 best players in the entire league but at the same time ken holland took over that team in 29 in the summer of 2019 after peter shirelli butchered it for however many years four or five years and there wasn't a ton of flexibility in the moves that Ken Holland was going to be able to make after being in Detroit for so long where he was coming to Edmonton. And I don't want to say he's basically starting from scratch because, you know, he already had a team that featured Dreisaitl, McDavid, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Darnell Nurse on the back end who really had a nice season this year. But for all intents and purposes, the Oilers are kind of locked in to a lot of their pieces at a pretty premium price. And... It's difficult for them to improve the team, which is one of the things I really want to talk about is where the Oilers go from here in a post-mortem type thing. They don't have a ton of options. Ryan Nugent Hopkins is an unrestricted free agent this summer. He's probably going to expect a slight raise. He's making about $7 million a season right now. I believe when I looked earlier on Evolving Wild, they had him figured for about... Seven and a half, eight million dollars in unrestricted free agency as a projection on a long term deal. And he very well could get that from a team that needs a second line player who can produce on a power play and be with some upside on a good team, but he's not going to be the driving force on a good second line. He is a good supporting piece on a good team, not a game changer or breaking player. And as far as the Oilers are concerned for building up their roster here, like I said, not a ton of cap space. They'll have a little bit of room to work with depending on what they opt to do with Nugent Hopkins, but they just have a lot of guys who don't really do anything is the nice way to say it. I mean, they're paying James Neal a decent amount of money. You're paying Miko Koisinen a lot of money because that was one of Peter Shirelli's last, last gifts to the city of Edmonton was giving Koisinen a multi-year contract at $4.1 million per year. You're still paying Alex Chase on. You're paying Zach Cassian. And those guys, while competent NHL players, are not going to help you in a playoff series against good teams, especially not when those guys are in top six roles. I know they tried to give Kyler Yamamoto some run on that top line last night because Jesse Pugliarvi had a tough first period, first two periods, and McDavid more or less told their coach Dave Tippett, hey, he's got to go. He's not helping right now. And 
to Tippett's credit, they did put Yamamoto up there, former first-round pick, and they did get a nice season out of Jesse Pugliarvi this year, a nice rebound season considering he didn't play in the NHL last year. He went on hiatus, went back to Finland because he was so disgruntled with the way he was being used in Edmonton and the way he was being treated. I mean, I remember there was a discussion last year in the fall, uh, the fall of 2019, excuse me, that maybe the Rangers can swap Leo Sanderson for Jesse Pugliarvi straight up one for one because these are both players with frustrations with their current situation at the time the Rangers were still looking for another wing to young wing to the top six for their rebuild and the Oilers have been hunting for a second center to play behind McDavid since he got there basically and they've auditioned a bunch of guys and Nugent Hopkins is fine but not great in the face-off circle which is something general managers still kind of harp on even though the analytics community kind of mer- doesn't think that argument has as much merit that you should be valuing guys who can drive possession because play moves so quickly that it, whoever wins a face-off, the pucks probably change possession twice in the eight seconds after a face-off. So if you want to say in overtime or in the defensive zone, it's a little bit different. If they have a little more weight, that's fine. I'd agree with you. But big picture-wise, harping over face-offs for your second-line center is not pointless, but it's missing the mark. It's not shouldn't be the most important thing when you're looking at guys. But when you look at everything that's gone wrong in Edmonton, they tried to get too good too fast, and I know that sounds weird to say about a team that's been pretty mediocre in Connor McDavid's tenure there, but they threw a bunch of money at a bunch of guys really quickly as soon as they got McDavid because they felt that, all right, we already got a guy. He played 40-something games as a rookie before he broke his collarbone, and he was averaging about a point a game. They felt pretty confident that, yeah, this guy's a building block. He's a real player. All we got to do is give him supporting pieces, and we could do something right away. And they got some fool's gold. They did make the playoffs that first year he was there, the first full season he played after he broke his collarbone as a rookie. But very quickly after that, you realize just how improbable that was, that they gave a bunch of money out. They traded for Cam Talbot to play goalie. They gave him an extension. They gave, believe, about $4 million a year for three years. He was good that first season. He was there. He got there the McDavid's first full year after he broke his collarbone in the 16-17 season and was good, but after that, he kind of fell apart and turned back into a pumpkin in net. They gave Milan Lucic that horrendous contract on the first day of free agency to be the complimentary power forward to ride shotgun with McDavid. They got 50 points out of him that season. They made the playoffs, and then his point total halved. He went to 24 the following year. And, of course, they traded him to the Calgary Flames for James Neal to try and get out of that contract. It was so bad. They gave Chris Russell a multi-year contract. And very quickly, you understand why the Oilers have struggled. They haven't built a team they have three four guys who are good everything else is just a bunch of warm bodies and unproven players I think some of the guys they have in their pipeline have some potential in the spurts I watched of them I thought Ethan Bear was fine as a bottom pair defenseman Evan Bouchard was drafted a number of years ago and has yet to get significant run they were able to salvage a fine point total season out of kind of a washed up Tyson Berry this year but, that, you know, that's a product of playing on a power play with McDavid and Dreisaitl. If you put any halfway competent defenseman on the power play with them, they're going to put up numbers. Tyler, uh, yeah, Tyson Berry, pretty good defenseman, but he's 
lost a step. He's not as good as he used to be offensively like he was back when he was at Colorado. He was fine this year, but the real problem for Edmonton is that this season was ideal because they got to beat up on the shitty teams. They got to play Vancouver. They got to play Calgary. They got to play Edmonton. And they handled Winnipeg, but against Toronto, they had a pretty hard time. Against Montreal, they had a relatively hard time. And next year, you're going back to a normal schedule. More importantly, on top of going back to the normal schedule, you don't really have a goaltender right now. Yeah, Mike Smith had a pretty good season this year as a 39-year-old, but do you really think he's going to be able to do that again at age 40? Are you really going to bank your playoff chances on a 40-year-old goalie? That doesn't really seem like smart team building, and you're not going to be able to do anything with Miko Koisin, and he makes too much money to get rid of as mediocre of a goaltender as he is. You don't have a goaltender, you're not making the playoffs. I, I, I just don't, there's no ifs, ands, or buts, or ways around it. If you have a below replacement level goaltender in an 82-game season, you're just not going to be able to make the playoffs. Sure, you might be able to score a ton of goals and play okay defense in front of them, but from a team-building perspective, the fact the Oilers are this limited in what they can do to improve their team, I know it was two years ago, it was the summer of 2019, Elliot Friedman said he thought, not that McDavid thought, he said, I, Elliot Friedman, think McDavid is going to tell Ken Holland, who was just hired in that summer of 2019, that you got two years for you to start getting us in the right direction. And I watched some of McDavid's exit interview on Tuesday afternoon with the media, and it wasn't as juicy as say Jack Eichel's where Jack Eichel said you know I got to do some thinking about my future and that kind of thing McDavid kind of was to the point of this wasn't great we expected better than this but I think we're going in the right direction type deal and do I think McDavid is the type who's going to demand the trade no do I wish he would yes it would be better for the sport if he would get off of a team that didn't know what it was doing because I know the hockey men are still pretty convinced that Ken Holland is like you know good at his job based on what he did in Detroit 20 years ago. You look at how Detroit you know didn't persevere and didn't keep extending their window. Datsuk left, Zetterberg retired, and they have one of the least talented rosters in the entire league. And he doled out a bunch of money to players who weren't that good. Whether you want to talk about a Justin. Justin Abdelkader, a Thomas Tatar, who they ended up trading. Just bad asset management. And that's where we really get to with the Oilers here is they tried to make the team better around McDavid right away as opposed to organically building the team up through the draft, letting their younger guys get their footing before throwing them to the Wolves. For the most part, when the Oilers got a kid during this you know, prolonged rebuild since, you know, 2010, where they've won like five, six lotteries, whatever, they've immediately thrown who they took in the top 10 to the Wolves for the most part. And you wonder what you don't, it's not hard to see why some of these guys failed. Whether you want to talk about a Niall Yakupov or a Yessi Pugliarvi prior to this season, you know, you throw a kid who's not ready into top six minutes and expect them to be immediate producers and they don't produce, and, you know, that's the reason your team isn't playing well, that's taxing on these young guys. And, yeah, I understand why Pugliarvi went back to Finland and was more or less, I want out of here until they were able to calm, not calm him down, but, you know, talk reason to him and say, hey, we're going to get it together here, we have a good idea for what we want you to do, and... I think the most damning thing, like I said during the introduction, 
neither Eichel or McDavid is fundamentally any closer to winning a Stanley Cup than they were six years ago when they were drafted as 18-year-olds. Neither of those players is that much closer to winning a Stanley Cup than they were the night they were drafted, and it's because of the organizations around them. The Oilers have taken the easy way out. They've thrown money at overpriced guys, at older guys, trying to just bolster through a middle six. Because in a normal year, that Pacific division is relatively soft. You get the Coyotes to beat up on. You get the Sharks to beat up on. You get the Kings. You get the Ducks. And, you know, you say, hey, in a normal year, we're third best team, the fourth best team, maybe the fifth best team, and we get lucky we can sneak in under the playoff format right now where it's division-based, you know, all they need is a few replacement-level guys, and McDavid and Dreisaitl can do enough crazy stuff in the regular season that it works, and if you get halfway decent goaltending, that's enough to make the first round of the playoffs and then lose to a better team, or in the case of last year in the playing round, lose to a team worse than you in the regular season like they did to the Blackhawks. A Blackhawks team they thoroughly outplayed, but they didn't get any goaltending and they couldn't score. It's one of those things where... The flaws of your team are dramatically magnified in the postseason. And I think the most telling thing about the triple overtime game on uh, Monday night for the Oilers where they lost was any time the mcdavid Drysidle line wasn't on the ice, it didn't feel like the Oilers were a threat to score. I know Devin Shore had a couple nice sequences there where he was forechecking in the new defensive zone and he was able to create a breakaway for himself and that kind of thing. But for all intents and purposes... You knew if McDavid or Dreisaitl wasn't the one either directly setting up the goal or scoring the goal themselves, Edmonton wasn't winning that game. And yeah, McDavid didn't have the best game last night. He did turn the puck over on one of the Winnipeg goals that went the other way. And that that is, not, it's not great. But I, I do want to say, Pierre Maguire talking about McDavid needs to be sat down, Ken Holland needs to sit him down and give him the Steve Eisman talk about 200 feet. McDavid had his best defensive season as a pro yet this year. Anybody who does any research and watches the Oilers could tell you that McDavid was better defensively this year, and it's part of why he was able to be so good offensively. Because like I always say on this podcast, the best defense in the NHL is to be on offense. The other team cannot score if you are in possession of the puck in their zone. They cannot score from the other end of the ice. So, yes, McDavid had his best defensive season as a pro, and it led to his best offensive production point-per-game-wise as a pro. I just wish people in positions of authority to speak on these topics knew what they were talking about. It's very frustrating, and one of the foundational premises of the show is that a lot of the professional pundits, a lot of the professional media class, they allow their internal biases, their internal perceptions to form their opinion, and they don't base it on the facts, when Pierre's on NBCSN and he's telling you, there's no way to measure that. Well, yeah, Pierre, there is. You just don't want to learn it. So there is, and you sound stupid, but, you know, to the casual person who might have been flicking through the channels and heard you say that, now you've worked the discourse and you've made it so people don't understand the game as well as they probably should. And it's frustrating as an informed hockey fan to hear people like Pierre mislead and lead the audience astray to run them amok to bamboozle them it's frustrating because we know better than that and i can't say it's mcdavid or dry fault they didn't win that series i i mean 
They just didn't score. They had 60-70% of the scoring chances. Most of the shot share, whether it's goals, Corsi, Fenwick, expected goal, excuse me, whether it's expected goals, Corsi, Fenwick, or high danger chances, they were in the mid-60s in all of those. They were creating amazing chances. Hellebuck just played out of his mind. Like I said, 6.9 goals saved above expected in four games. I mean, for perspective, Marc-Andre Fleury had, I think, 19 goals saved above expected in a 56-game season. So for Hellebuck to have a third of the season leader after four games, yes, it's magnified because it's only four games. You didn't let him play long enough to have a bad game. But still, man, just absolutely superb goaltending. And I know goaltending isn't as sexy of a story as, you know, Sportsnet blaming McDavid and Dreisaitl and NBCSN talking about how the Jets shut down Edmonton's best players. They didn't shut shit down. Hellebuck just played out of his mind. Anytime the Oilers had the puck in the offensive zone, it was on a string. McDavid and Dreisaitl were whipping it around trying to get it past Hellebuck, and he just wasn't letting them. So forgive me if I'm going to give the Stars a pass for playing like Stars. Hockey's a high-variant sport where even if you play out of your mind well, a hot goalie can equate that and balance that out and make it so you don't win. So I don't really want to hear anyone blaming McDavid Dreisaitl for the Oilers not winning. Yeah, they didn't pl- score as many goals as they probably could have because they were driving play so well, but, you know, that's just hockey, unfortunately. And to compare it nicely to... I am watching the Leafs and Habs game as well as the Predators and Hurricanes game while I'm recording this episode, and the Leafs are the opposite way, where, yes, they might have made some not-great moves in their initial rebuilding process, giving some contracts to players like Matt Martin, who were kind of there for identity reasons as opposed to hockey reasons, that kind of thing, but you see it now that... Their general manager, Kyle Dubas, understands what his young stars, his Austin Matthews, his Mitch Marner, his Willie Nylander, what they need to be successful. Did the Leafs need to go out and get John Tavares? No. But he bolstered a position of need. They needed a second center to go 1-2 with Matthews. He makes his line mates better. He helps lesser players out. So in a normal year when Tavares is healthy, he should theoretically be good to go come hockey season in the fall. He might be able to come back conference finals if the Leafs are still alive that far down the road. But you have a guy like him. You have Austin Matthews. You got Willie Nylander in there. And for Toronto, it's just been a matter of finding the right goaltender. And like I just said about the Jets having Hellebuck to balance out the scales in their favor, the Leafs have played a pretty damn well in all of their first round exits the last few years and they just haven't had the goalie in freddie anderson do i think gregory campbell is your long-term answer in that probably not but for now he helped them be competitive this year they're in pretty good shape in their first round series with montreal they will be the favorite against winnipeg should they advance if they were to advance but that is a team that understands It cannot be overpaying for depth. Yes, the Leafs are a little bit more unique in a sense that players will take less money to go play there because it is Toronto. Wayne Simmons, Joe Thornton, Jason Spezza, all these guys who want to bring a cup to Toronto because they grew up in Ontario, they grew up Leafs fans, they were willing to take the veteran minimum because the stars on that team are making so much money. It's unique. Not every team is going to be able to get high-brand 
high upside bottom six players for little money like the Leafs are, but they understood. You can't be doling out crazy money to depth pieces on the first day of restrict, unrestricted free agency. You can't be signing Milan Lucic. You can't be giving Andre Sakara a multi-year extension like the Oilers did. You can't be trading high-end players to fill a need like the Oilers did trading Taylor Hall for Adam Larson, who never became the first pair right defenseman the Oilers thought he would be when they traded for him. Yes, that was a Peter Chiarelli galaxy brain. If you want to believe some of the reporting out there, the Habs were ready to trade P.K. Subban for Taylor Hall one-for-one, one, but the Oilers never called the Habs back. Mark Bergevin, the Habs general manager, had to get approval from his owner before he was going to make the trade, and he never got a call back because Peter Shirelli rushed to make that deal happen with the Devils for Adam Larson. Instead, he could have gotten P.K. Subban if he just waited another hour, half hour, what have you. And you see the effects. The Oilers have not identified their actual needs they need depth scoring they need secondary pieces they need a first pair defenseman I don't know if Darnell Nurse is a number one defenseman you can build your entire defense around yes he had a nice season this year but it's very hard to contextualize his improvement this year because of the competition they played in that North division it'll be very informative to see how his 2021-2022 season goes against a normal schedule and with less games against bottom-tier competition. I really do wonder where the Oilers and Sabres, to a lesser extent, go from here. I know I've mentioned the Sabres and Jack Eichel here and there, but this is mostly about Connor McDavid because the Oilers lost their series yesterday, and they had their exit interviews on Tuesday, and I'm just left wondering about the Oilers because they don't have a ton of flexibility, and they have a lot of needs. Hockey is not like basketball, where you can have two superstars, and that's enough. And, you know, the Lakers won a title last year with LeBron and Anthony Davis. The Oilers cannot win a Stanley Cup with just McDavid and Dreisaitl, no matter how good they are. I know McDavid had nine standing points above replacement worth of value. I know Dreisaitl had about seven. I know McDavid's going to win his second Hart Trophy this year, and Dreisaitl won his first last year. You can't win with just that, especially when you play them on the same line, because if those guys aren't scoring together, no one else in your lineup is going to score. And that's the real issue here. I mean, the bottom nine forwards didn't get terribly outscored against Winnipeg. They actually kind of drove possession against Winnipeg. But if your first line's not scoring, your depth isn't scoring, you, you need to score goals to win playoff series is really what it comes down to. You can have the best defense, the best goaltender, but eventually it comes due, you need to score a goal in an overtime in a crucial situation. And I know that's one of the things I always harp on on this show or on the blog is saying things like you need to be able to find a goal, you got to play playoff hockey, that kind of stuff is very cliche and it frustrates me. It takes a lot of luck to win a Stanley Cup. I, I say it more, it's one of the most important lessons I hope you can take away from listening to the show over the few months I've been doing it is, it is really damn hard to win a championship, and it takes a lot of things to go right to win four playoff series over three months. It really freaking does. And you saw it. I'm not going to say everything that could go wrong for the Oilers went wrong, but they play that series out a hundred times with that kind of play through four games. The Oilers are getting to game seven a lot of those outcomes. They just didn't get enough bounces and it's one of the reasons these underlying numbers are so 
telling and useful is over a long range sample over a 50 a 60 game sample you can draw conclusions you get an understanding because you get an average in a four game series you do not get the average you get a small snapshot of what those players were in that exact moment of time and it's really easy to draw conclusions based off of you know four games and it's what the hockey centric media is doing it's a widespread autopsy of what did the Oilers do wrong how come McDavid and Dreisaitl didn't score enough how come their defense wasn't good enough how come Mike Smith wasn't good enough how come they were playing a with only two lines and two defensive pairs in a triple overtime game. All of that stuff is part of this discussion. But no one wants to say the most important thing. You know, Hellebuck played out of his mind. You play that series 10 times, 100 times, you know, the Oilers are probably going to win more often than not if they're creating 70% of the scoring chances at 5-on-5. That kind of shit is usually indicative of a good hockey team. And while I don't think the Oilers are that good in the grand scheme of things, like if they were to get to the final four of the playoffs this year, they would have the longest odds to win the cup if it was, say, them, the Bruins, and then either Colorado, Vegas, and then Tampa or Carolina. It'd be very daunting for Edmonton to play against those teams. But Edmonton was good enough in the regular season, and I thought they would have fared better against Winnipeg. I really did think they would have fared better, and they played well. That That's the thing I really want to focus on before I get out of here is they played well. The team is not well constructed. It is not situated to win, and in spite of that, the team played pretty damn well. If you create 70% of the scoring chances, 65% of the dangerous scoring chances, in the long run, you expect to win more games. You expect to win more games than you would lose if you do that continuously. In a seven-game series, though, you don't have the fortuity of time to straighten out your finishing problems because finishing is something you can iron out. If you have, you know, a month to figure out your offense, you can experiment with some things. You can tinker. You can do some high-low stuff, try and get rebound shots or deflection shots. Oilers didn't have time to iron out any kinks. They were up against it from the very get-go in a very tight series with not a lot of room for error, and they never got to work out those problems. And the flaws of their roster construction were especially glaring in such a short series because, like I said before when I was talking about the triple overtime, I never felt that anyone in that bottom six or that second line even was going to give them anything. It really did feel like if McDavid or Dreisaitl didn't do anything— there was nothing going to happen. Like, yeah, they got some decent guys in that middle six who were okay hockey players, but none of those guys is doing anything special or driving play in a dominant way the way Dreisaitl and McDavid do. To wrap up here, I know this is a little bit shorter than I usually do, but I do want to pay attention to the final period of Predators Hurricanes because it is shaping up into a damn good hockey game. It's been a very entertaining playoff series. I am lucky enough to say I am going to game six between the Islanders and Penguins tonight when you are listening to this on Wednesday. I had to go. It's either the last game at the Coliseum or Islanders close it out and it is an absolute madhouse. I have not been to a hockey game since Mika Zbigniewicz's five-goal game last March, March 5th, 2020. 
it's been more than a year. We're at almost 14 months since my last hockey game. I am itching. I am so damn excited to be going to a hockey game, especially one with a lively crowd. For all the shit I give Islander fans, for all the shit I give Nassau Coliseum, it's a great environment to go to a hockey game. I'm very, very happy I have the opportunity to go. And please go get vaccinated so everybody can go to sporting events. I know stadiums are still doing the non-vaccinated sections where they got to space everyone out and they sell less tickets and it's not 100% capacity. Go get vaccinated. Let's get back to 100% capacity at everything. The more people get vaccinated, the more likely teams are, venues are to do 100% seating for only vaccinated people. I know they don't want to shut out people who aren't, but... It'd be nice if we were at 100% capacity. We're getting close. On Tuesday afternoon, we reached 50% of U.S. adults, 18 plus, fully vaccinated. So either one Johnson & Johnson or two of Pfizer and Moderna. We're getting there, folks. By fall, sports look like they're going to be entirely normal. So I'm going to have the absolute best time at the game on Wednesday. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode and... Word to Connor McDavid, we got to get that man some help. No episode on Thursday because I'm going to the game, but we'll be back on an episode for Friday. I will see you guys then. See ya.